Welcome to Her Story, the history of Southeast Asia told from her perspective. We'll discover historical figures, matriarchal societies, and contemporary female icons, and maybe learn about ourselves along the way. I'm Agus Ramirez. In this episode, we'll talk about Haja Fatima, the Sultana of Goa, a tradeswoman and philanthropist from Malacca who built the Haja Fatima Mosque, a rare example of a mosque named after a woman in Singapore. Right off the bat, I want to say that we don't know a lot about Haja Fatima, even though she is probably the most famous Singaporean heroine. We know that she was born around 1754, at a time when Singapore was already part of a rich, robust trading region. When you think of Singapore, you probably think of a highly modern city-state with well-lit skylines and advanced train systems. Then and now... Singapore's geographic position at a crossroads for trade has mostly worked in its favor. It is located at the southern tip of the Malay Peninsula, about 137 kilometers north of the equator. It was part of the Maritime Silk Road, a major oceanic trade route dating back to the first millennium between East and Southeast Asia, India, the Middle East, and eventually Europe. The Maritime Silk Road is what many scholars consider to be an early form of globalization. Singapore started becoming prominent in the late 1200s. Its early history actually has very limited documentation. It is only after Singapore became a British holding that the historical record becomes clearer. However, evidence suggests that human habitation of Singapore started centuries earlier. A portion of the historical account of the city-state is based on the Malay Annals, it's a book written on the command of Malay Sultan Mahmud Shah. It chronicles the history of the Malay Sultanate in the 15th to the early 16th century. The book covers the establishment of the Malacca Sultanate, her relationship with neighboring kingdoms including China, as well as the administrative practices during that period. Also included are anecdotes such as the story of Badang, the strongest man during his time. The annals were intended to be a record of the descent of the rulers, along with court customs and ceremonies, at a time when Malay control of the region was being threatened by European colonizers. What we see in the Malay annals is a semi-mythological history rather than a literal account. So how did Singapore come to be? The legend claims that there was a prince, Sangnila Utama, who was perhaps the product of a union between an adventurer king and the princess of an underwater kingdom, or a descendant of a union of Alexander the Great with an Indian princess. If you listen to the bonus episode on the Minangkabau, you might recall that the Minangkabau also believe that they are descended from one of Alexander the Great's sons. Anyway, the prince and his two brothers were each given territory, and Sangnila Otama became Raja of Palembang. Palembang became prosperous under Sangnila Otama's rule, but he had inherited his father's adventurous nature and decided to set out on a voyage to seek a location to found a new city. First, he went to Bintan, an island just southeast of Singapore, 
for the queen, Sakidar Shah, took a liking to him, adopted him, and named him her successor. Sangmila Otama's time with the queen is significant as she is allegedly the source of musical instruments that became tokens of nobility for later Malay rulers. But then, Sangmila Otama became bored with court life and set out again, this time to go hunting. He sailed to Tamasek and was disappointed to find very poor hunting with only small animals and birds. Suddenly, a huge animal appeared and then disappeared again. His ministers informed him of an ancient lion that had a similar appearance. He decided that the location would be perfect for his new city, Singapura, or Lion Town. Sangnila Otama set up his kingdom there, and what today is known as Fort Canning Hill became the royal residence. He was also known as Sri Tribuana, which indicates he was ruler of three lands, probably Java, Sumatra, and Temasek. It's clear from stories like this that movement has always been a big part of what makes Singapore, Singapore. By the 14th century, it fit at least in part the definition of a port of trade in which trade was a function of government policy. Government agents played key roles in port activities. Sources from various territories, such as Portuguese traders, wrote that it was a point of exchange rather than a source of goods. This is because the local soil is poor, and as Sangmila Otama's legend already mentioned, there wasn't a lot of wildlife to begin with. We'll jump now to the 1700s. After Sultan Mahmud Shah was assassinated by his own ruling council, there's probably a podcast about this somewhere, loyalties were upset in the territory, especially since the Sultan didn't have a direct heir. It was in this period that we saw the rise of the Bugis people, they used to be mercenaries who worked for various sultans on the Malay Peninsula. Over time, they gained considerable power and became highly influential in the leadership of various kingdoms, including Johor, a state in southern Malaysia that is today linked to Singapore via causeways. The 1700s are considered to be the century of the Bugis in Malay history. But of course, they had their rivals. Among them, a Raja Kachik from Siak, but he was later overthrown. The presence of European colonizers further complicated power relations in the region. In 1755, the Bugis-backed Sultan Sulaiman wanted to become independent, so he made an agreement with the Dutch. This began a fairly long Bugis-Dutch conflict, which also involved Siak, and so on. It was in this general climate that Haja Fatima Binte Sulaiman was born. As mentioned, according to estimates, she was born in the year 1754, making her one of the earliest traders in the history of modern Singapore. She was born in Malacca to a well-known and wealthy trading family. After the collapse of an unsuccessful first marriage, she married Daing Chandapuli, a Bugis prince and merchant from South Sulawesi, then known as Celebes. Because of this, she was often referred to as Sultana of Goa, South Sulawesi. Puli had a trading post in Singapore, so he brought Fatima Binte Sulaiman with him to the island. But Fatima was widowed early. Remarkably, there's nothing else I could find about this Bugis prince except that he was married to Fatima. So what's a young widow to do? Well, she combined his business with her own boats and built a successful steamship and sailboat-based trading operation. 
she started expanding the business using her late husband's extensive network. At some point, Fatima became Hajja Fatima, which means she made the Hajj or the pilgrimage to Mecca. Then she built herself a large house in Singapore, specifically in Kampong Glam, in what today is known as Beach Road. Apparently, Kampong Glam was not an affluent neighborhood at the time. It hosted many poor immigrants of Malay, Arab, and Bugis descent who were searching for a better life. Many settlers lived in tight quarters with dirty streets and clogged drains. The poor who could not afford shelter were left in the streets. And as usual in these situations, crime was also pretty high. Haja Fatima, as was common during those times, was victimized by thieves twice. On the second occasion that they tried to rob her house, they burned it down. Fortunately, she was away at the time and was not harmed. And she refused to move from Kampong Glam. Thankful that her life had been protected during the fire, she donated the land where her house had stood, as well as provided funds for the construction of a mosque. She also built a stretch of houses near the mosque for the poor. Her love for Singapore and its people, all its people, is a big part of her legacy. And that's most of what we know about her. It's believed that Haja Fatima passed away at the age of 98 in 1852. As specified in her will, she was buried behind the mosque in a mausoleum. After the break, we'll talk about this unique mosque as well as Haja Fatima's descendants who still play a role in managing it. Hello there, my name is Jinx. And I'm Faith, and together we're the two-woman team of Synchronicity Events PH. Synchronicity Events is an events coordination group that can help you plan and put together celebrations for your life milestones so that you can be worry-free on the actual day itself. Drop us a line on Facebook at SyncEventsPH. That's S-Y-N-C Events PH. You can also catch us on YouTube to get some insider info, tips, and trends in the events industry here in the Philippines. Find us, Jinx and Faith, on YouTube as Hustle Girlfriend. Girlfriend spelled as GF. And don't forget the exclamation point at the end. And see you on our socials. Haja Fatima Mosque on Beach Road stands out for being one of the few mosques and indeed places named after a woman in Singapore. According to the Islamic Religious Council of Singapore or MUIS, there are only three. The others are Khadija Mosque in Geylang and Haja Rahimabi Mosque in Kimkiat, both built in the last century. Haja Fatima Mosque, built between 1842 and 1846, is the oldest of the three. Out of curiosity, I looked up the other two mosques. 
Khadija Mosque was started with the first donation of 50,000 Singaporean dollars by Madame Khadija Binte Muhammad in 1915. It was finally built in 1920, four years after her death. The architectural elements were influenced by the Nagore Shrine in Ashmir, India, which is a stunning darga beside a river with five minarets. A darga, I learned, is derived from a Persian word and it means a shrine built over the grave of a revered religious figure, often a Sufi saint or a dervish. In 2003, a new auditorium building in Khadija Mosque was opened by then-Prime Minister Go Chok Tong. The other one, Masjid Haja Rahimabi Kabun Limau, is the newest. It was built in 1984. The mosque was originally just called Surau Kebon Limau. Kebon Limau is Malay for lime garden because the area had many lime trees in the late 1800s. It has actually been in existence uh, since 1959 when Muslim residents of the surrounding area requested for land to build a surau or prayer hall. After the community was granted this plot of land in 1961, each Muslim family in the area contributed $20 to build it and it opened in 1964. It was upgraded and renamed Masjid Kebon Limau in 1974. The name of philanthropist Haja Rahima B. Amadangulia was added in 1984 when it reopened after she made a generous donation for its renovation in memory of her daughter who died in 1976. Side note, Haja Rahima B. was actually continuing her family's tradition of building mosques. Her grandfather, Muhammad Saleh Yusofji Angulia, built Angulia Mosque at Serangoon Road in the 1890s, while her father, Ahmed Muhammad Saleh Angulia, built the former Angulia Park Mosque near Orchard Road in 1933. So back to Haja Fatima Mosque. There are a lot of articles talking about its unique architecture. It's often called a fusion of East and West. Designed by an unknown Englishman, The mosque's architecture is a mix of European, Malay, and Chinese influences. So here's what it looks like. It has an onion-shaped dome and an ablution or cleansing area that looks like a Malay house with traditional Malay-Muslim wood carvings inside. But then, there are Chinese glazed porcelain tiles in the parapet grills on the windows, on the minaret tower, and the top walls of the roof parapet. Note that a minaret is a tall, slender tower, typically part of a mosque, with a balcony from which a muezzin calls Muslims to prayer, which happens five times a day. This is called salat. So this happens at, and forgive me for pronouncing this incorrectly, fajr at dawn, dur after midday, asr in the afternoon, maghrib at sunset, isha at nighttime, all facing towards Mecca. If you still can't imagine what a minaret looks like, Google the mosque. It's very beautiful. What most people remember about the Hajj Fatima Mosque is precisely that minaret, which resembles a church spire. It is three-tiered with two octagonal towers and an elongated pyramid. It bears a close resemblance to the neoclassical spires of the first St. Andrew's Church. Other European elements include pilasters or rectangular columns projecting from walls with Doric capitals on the minaret tower and the lancet-shaped doorways, bays, and windows. Interestingly, over the years, due to its sandy foundation, the minaret has started to tilt towards the dome 
at about 6 degrees off center. Preservation work has stopped any further tilting, but the inclination is still visible. So tourists and residents sometimes call it Singapore's version of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. When Hajjah Fatima died, she left behind an only daughter, Raja Siti. Raja Siti would later marry a member of the influential Al-Sagoth family. The Al-Sagoths were Arab Singaporean spice traders. Siad Ahmed bin Abdulrahman Al-Sagoth came to Singapore with his father, and by marrying Raja Siti, a local aristocrat, their family's influence grew even further. They would later become known for their philanthropy too, such as financing the Hajj of Fatima Mosque. Siad Modar Al-Sagoth, a fifth-generation descendant of Hajj of Fatima, has been involved with the mosque for almost 40 years. In a 2017 interview, the 75-year-old Siad Modar Al-Sagoth said he goes to the mosque every day during Ramadan as well as for Friday prayers. Modar Al-Sagoth was chairman of the Hajj of Fatima Mosque Management Board for 10 years before stepping down in April 2017. His nephew, Ustaz Siad Mustafa Al-Sagoth, 42, is the current chairman. The Al-Sagoths were actually the keepers of the mosque until Muiz started to manage mosques in 1968. That's the council for uh, mosques in Singapore. But the Al-Sagoth family remains active when it comes to matters concerning the mosque. Raja City's son, Siad Muhammad Ahmed Al-Sagoth, left behind a trust to maintain the mosque as well as to build the Al-Sagoth Arab School which was founded in 1912 and still stands across the street from the mosque. Part of the trust also goes to orphanages run by the Muslim Trust Fund Association. Some 40 graves in the compound of the mosque are those of descendants of Siad Ahmad. Hajj Fatima's daughter, Raja Siti, died in Mecca in Saudi Arabia and is buried there. Next to Hajj Fatima's grave is a separate enclosure where her son-in-law, grandson, and brother-in-law are buried. Masjid Hajjah Fatima was gazetted as a national monument in 1973. Annual feasts are held to commemorate the anniversary of her death at Masjid Hajjah Fatima. For her philanthropy and role in establishing the mosque that bears her name, Hajjah Fatima Binte Sulaiman was inducted into the Singapore Women's Hall of Fame in 2014, the Hall of Fame's inaugural year. I couldn't find any portraits online of Hajjah Fatima from the time she was alive, so we mostly have artist renderings of her, such as the one I used in the thumbnail. It's the official portrait they used in the Singapore Women's Hall of Fame. She's looking to the left, a hijab covering her head, a serene smile on her face, perhaps thinking fondly of all the people who have come together and still come together to continue the legacy of this unique architectural, cultural, and religious landmark. Producing a podcast like this takes a lot of time and research. If you like what we do and want to support the next episodes, head on over to our Patreon. Thank you to Laura, Yati, Kara, and Mando for being there throughout this whole thing. If you join the Patreon, you can give as little as $1 to get a copy of the show notes with all the references, access to the Close Friends Instagram stories, a shout-out at the end of the next episode, and the occasional bonus episode. We actually have a bonus episode this month on the Chrome clone, the all-female bodyguard of the King of Siam. It's short, but it's pretty informative. And if you can't join us on Patreon, just tell your friends about this podcast. That works too. 
Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Her Story C Pod. That's Her Story S E A Pod. In the next episode, we'll talk about Queen Indra Devi of the Khmer civilization, one of Cambodia's first known women poets and the author of the Sanskrit poem inscribed on the steel at the Temple of Himenakas in Siem Reap. There are so many more stories to tell and we're just getting started. This podcast was written, hosted, and edited by Agas Ramirez. Thank you again for listening and we hope to see you again next time. Sampai jumpa lagi!